This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. talking a lot about is the way that Gen Z is showing up powerfully. We talked about gun reform uh, in the state of Washington, and we've been talking a lot about the environment as well. Yesterday, you may recall, we heard from Alexa Imani Spencer talking with us about the impact of tree cover inequality, which was something that was new for a lot of us. And joining me today is Maya Richard Craven, a journalist from Los Angeles, California, and her work has appeared in the LA Times, USA Today, the Boston Globe, the Guardian, the New York Daily News, Philadelphia Inquirer and a whole bunch more uh, that I would happily mention, but it would take us out of time. Uh, she was previously an editorial <laughs> fellow at both Sierra Magazine and Audubon Magazine, and she is currently the climate justice reporter at Word in Black, where she focuses on the intersection between race and the environment. Maya Richard Craven, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for the, the very warm introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> Listen, I mean, you've got you've got the receipts. All I have to do is read them off the page because you did the work. <laughs> and you did that. And so we appreciate you. I've been really fascinated with the power of youth at once because, you know, I used to be one. And even though now I'm technically, according to my kids and old, I realize that there is something happening when it comes to Gen Z that I don't remember being necessarily as equally reflective of my generation, Gen X. I'm at the tail end of Gen X at the very beginning of the millennial reality. And we are seeing a level of activism that's really been impressive on a whole number of levels. And I want to know if you could just start by giving us a sense as to the scope of the power as you're seeing it when it comes to Gen Z, with particular attention to how Gen Z is responding to a lot of the issues we're seeing with regards to climate and climate change. Yeah, thank you for that. So first off, I just want to say that I think Gen Z is a special generation. I think there's no generation that has been like Gen Z. My brother is Gen Z. I have a colleague, our um, education reporter is Gen Z. And I've seen this fervor and passion in them that I've never seen in another generation. It reminds me of when baby boomers were younger during the 70s. There were the Stonewall protests with LGBTQ and you know civil rights and anti-war huh. protests. And I think, honestly, a lot of baby boomers produced Gen Zers. And I think that really trickled down. I really do. And so... Um, if you go head on to TikTok or Instagram or Twitter, you will find Black female climate influencers. And there are more and more of us cropping up. Now, what does it mean to be a Black female climate influencer? Because I, you know, I was talking with, with uh, Alexa yesterday and I mentioned the fact that I consider myself sort of like a granola girl when it comes to the climate. You know, like I, I'll be, I will <laughs> hug, I believe in nature. And, you know, we have a lot of folks who come up, we have an entire uh, soul medicine segment where we think about how the nature, the calendar in nature is reflected in our internal life. So I'm definitely someone who would consider themselves a granola girl. And for those of you who don't know what I mean when I say that, you know, it's something that we used to say when we were younger um, that talked about people people who were like tree hugger, do-gooder, like recycle type folks. And so I realized not mm -hmm. so much that I'm, I'm in that category, but black female climate influencers is not a phrase that we often throw around or hear, hear uttered. What do you mean by that? And what are these black female client, climate influencers attempting to do with their newfound power in places like TikTok? That's a great question. So when I say black female climate influencer, I mean, someone who has developed a following, whether it's on Twitter, um, Instagram, or TikTok, but usually on TikTok, 
who has built a following around environmental justice. Um, so mm -hmm. there's a lot of black female climate influencers. That's what we're calling them now. People who speak out uh, on TikTok, on social media about environmental justice and how to further support frontline communities. So a few examples are Michaela Loach. Um, Leah Thomas is the most well-known. She um, created intersectional environmentalists. She is mixed and is a big believer in being inclusive in the environmental space. There's also Wawa Gathru, who's a first-generation Kenyan um, person who speaks a lot about climate justice, about stopping the Willow Project, um, all these different things. So to be a Black climate influencer means you have a following on social media, you're speaking out about climate justice, and oftentimes they happen to be female. Wow. And once again, Black women riding to the rescue. I love it. I'm here for it 1000%. What's the Willow Project, this project that Wawa Gothru is speaking out against? What is that? The Willow Project, whew, it, it gets me a little upset. The Willow Project is something that Biden has approved. It is going to likely be the largest oil drilling, oil and gas drilling project in American history. Um, oh. There will be hundreds of millions of acres taken in Alaska. Um, it is an area that is surrounded by eight Native American tribes and they wow. are taking the land and drilling it. And it's going to move, force people to move around. It's going to create jobs for people who, you know, probably shouldn't be doing it, um, but need the job. And that's the, 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 you know, the problem here is that Biden just made a promise, a pledge to increase um, federal agencies involvement with environmental justice only right. a month after he decided to do the largest oil drilling project in American history. That seems a little schizophrenic, <laughs> cognitively dissonant. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit, um, it's a performative. That's what it is. Biden's attempts at climate justice are performative. Um, he can mm -hmm. sign whatever he wants. He can say that, you know, he's going to do this or that, but then approve these oil projects. Um, and as we know, Biden does not have the cleanest history when it comes to being racist or not racist. And so I'm very weary of his decisions and announcements because what matters is what's going on behind closed doors. Wow. So let's talk about this, this executive order. Cause I, we talked about it on the show briefly. I was like, Oh snap, look at this. President Biden has signed an executive order to quote prioritize <laughs> environmental justice for federal agencies. Now I thought that this would be a good thing. Admittedly, I didn't actually do a whole lot of reading on it. I saw it in a headline. I was excited about it and kind of went on about my black day. So, but I, what I'm hearing <laughs> you say is that nonsense. Let's hold on. We're not just going to applaud. We need to do a little bit of digging. What exactly. does this order accomplish? And how does this executive order stand in further contrast to, you mentioned the Willow Project, what seems to be the trend when it comes to this administration's record on, on climate justice? And I'm asking an audience, this is not just for us to, you know, I, I, I do not like to apologize for having to critique administrations. I critique administrations who need it. So this isn't just about, you know, oh, you being mean to the Democrats. No, we want to know what's happening so we can hold people accountable because what we also know is that this administration does tend to respond to pressure in some ways that we can activate on. And so so if we're going to talk about the environmental justice and the racial justice of the executive order, let's talk about what it's really doing so that we can push them to do what it is we actually want them to do. So talk about this executive order. Is it going to, is it much to do about nothing? I thought it was going to be a, you know, I thought we well, this is the it. thing. Okay. I don't want to, there's something called climate doomism. I really don't want to be like, a lot of people are like, oh gosh, climate change, climate crisis, Biden, we're all going to die. It's like, that's not the perspective we need to take to fight for environmental justice. So I first off want to say, I want to give the Biden administration 
administration some credit um, because they passed the infrastructure bill, which was something that went to public transportation, roads, um, all this different stuff that kind of wasn't being taken care of. Kamala Harris has a history of fighting for environmental justice. She pushed the Green New Deal, which is like this whole new plan about how America should approach fossil fuels and green spaces and all these different things. And people made fun of her for it while she was, while Biden was running for president. You know, they'd call her the green girl or, or little weird comments I'd see online uh, about how climate change wasn't real. So it's not like they haven't done anything. Um, mm. It's not like they haven't done anything. But in March of this year, they approved the Willow Project, which has started. They have started drilling for oil and gas in a very large area, and they plan to do it for 30 years. So I, I'm very glad about his executive order. That is for holding federal agencies accountable. But in terms of what his administration is doing right now with fossil fuels, in 2020, he promised, uh, 2019, he promised at a New, New Hampshire campaign meeting that he would end fossil fuels. It's 2023 mm. and he's now drilling the largest drilling project in American history. I thought we were ending fossil fuels. So that's the thing is the environmental pledge he made is great. And I actually believe that a lot of work will be put into that and done. And the woman who announced the, announced actually, um, the pledge at the White House. She spoke before Biden. I interviewed her. Her name is Catherine Coleman Flowers, and she's been a great source to me. She was incredible. She's a proud Delta. Um, and uh, <laughs> I said, are you a Delta? I said that to her in the interview. She said, yes. <laughs> you know, we, they do be in the most amazing places. I'm just going to exactly. leave it at that. Exactly. <laughs> So this is important because it's, we need to have a level set here, but you, it sounds like there is some good that is going to come out of this executive order, even while yes, we hold- Yes, a lot of good will come out yeah. of this. Yes. Okay. Okay. So that's important to know because I like to be balanced. I like to be nuanced and I like to make sure exactly. that we're dealing with so this is this is key. One of the things that we have been talking about again, as I mentioned before, was the role that Gen Z is playing. And these three women that you've mentioned, I think everyone needs to. If you're on TikTok, you need to be following folks like this. What are you seeing generally as it pertains to your reporting across the country about how Gen Z is organizing? So we, we've got the online component with these Black female influencers, and I know that there are others. But how are they organizing in ways? Because we were just talking about what happened in the state of Washington, where Gen Z really showed up for the assault weapons ban that just got passed into law, accomplishing something that we, the olds, I'm, I won't include you in that. You look very youthful, but we, the olds, <laughs> like accomplishing something that we have not been able to accomplish. What are we seeing in terms of their activism on the ground around issues of climate change? And I'm asking that also because we see a very stark difference between what the Democrats are saying, and we're going to hear in a moment from Marjorie Taylor Greene, what she and others like her are saying, how is Gen Z organizing to address these issues in ways that are kind of unique to them? Well, People we can't acknowledge like, climate justice hold, hold, hold without acknowledging environment. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. We had a, a clash of microphones. <laughs> so we had the clip started, <laughs> but I want to hold the clip for just a second. Go ahead. Let's hear what you have to say about the way Gen Z is organizing. So basically, but before talking about what they're doing for climate justice, I have to just say that racial justice is climate justice. And Ooh. they seem to understand that. Um, and so when you look at, for example, 2020, with the protests and the curfews and the buildings lighting on fire, Gen Z was up in there. They were like, I had not seen young people organize like that. I couldn't remember in my lifetime, a time where right. I'd seen young, you know, young 20 year olds or 
15 year olds organizing and going out. And that's when I knew Gen Z was special. That is when I knew it was after George Floyd passed away because the response was like no other. There were protests in 40, all 40 states. And so in terms of on the work ground, I think it was very much the fire kept going because what happened with all of the deaths of black men, unarmed black men. And so people started to question, there were all these articles coming out in 2020, is racial justice climate justice, you know, from these white publications. And then there'd right. be pictures of black people protesting, right? And what they're doing on the ground, I mean, look at Jackson. There are so many young people working with, you know, the NAACP in Jackson, um, you know, the Sunrise Movement. There's all these different young right. Gen Z movements coming up. And so um, you, I, I want to tell listeners to check out EcoTalk. It is a TikTok collective um, of like influencers, right? But a lot of them are doing on the ground work that isn't seen. So maybe it's fighting air pollution or it's advocating for clean water. Um, I know that little Miss Flint, she's probably generation A, not Z. Yeah. Yes, there is a younger yeah. generation. Shout out to the alphas, a, <laughs> generation alpha. Great, yeah, generation alpha, exactly. She's a great definition or example. She's a great example of young people getting involved. This, mm. you know, Flint, you know, the water isn't still, it isn't clean. I asked the mayor himself on a phone call, is the water, is there still lead in the water? And he said, no amount of water is safe. That's a direct quote. Wow. So Gen Zers are fighting that, like with Black Millennials for Flint. And there's all these different organizations that where young people are starting to join. They're watching, you know, millennials kind of, you know, do what they did, but they're taking what we've done and showing the world. They're wow. exposing it to the world. When you Google Wawa Gatharoo, there are posts from people across the world. There are followers and likes from people across the world. When you mm. post, you know, Leah Thomas. Now, this is something I probably shouldn't mention, but there's a lot of colorism in the environmental space. I wanted to ask you about that because okay. you mentioned that she's mixed. I, I wanted to think about like, because we've seen how racial hierarchies can replicate themselves even within movements that are designed to address racial inequities. What are you mm -hmm. seeing as it pertains to the colorism in this aspect? So basically the environmental, at least environmental journalism is 84% white, okay? Ooh. Journalism is 90% white around there. And so mm. we have to take a step back and think, okay, do we wanna be the only one in the room? Do we want it? Someone once said this to me, do you want to go into a cold room and warm it up? Or do you wanna be warm and warm up a cold room? And as a black woman, I will always be the one who warms up the cold room. And that mm. is what these black female influencers are doing. Now, in terms of colorism, I'm someone who's experienced that myself. I think a lot of us have, right? And yeah. I've noticed at environmental nonprofits, we actually talk about this, the black folks and the Latinx folks, and all of us talk about it, that they will hire someone who is light-skinned from a specific background in order to make it appear as if the person is non-threatening, which isn't true. So mm. they'll take someone like me who speaks quote unquote well and looks like this and expect me to sit in the room and not say anything well it's on you know what I mean and so oh. uh I've seen I've heard from some climate influencers specifically Wawa she is a first generation Kenyan and she has very dark skin and mm. it's been hard for her in the space it it really has um because for some reason the media and the world will put light-skinned climate influencers at the forefront you know yes. 
people whose hair falls right away. I'm like that when I wet my hair, it falls. I have freckles and they will often pick people who look like me to lead the charge. When in reality, there are so many people on the ground, especially in the South, who, you know what? Maybe they have a gap tooth. Maybe they don't look like a model, but their work is just as valuable as someone with 200,000 likes. And we know that gap teeth are beauty marks in some parts of the world. (laughs) Exactly. That part. I have a gap and I love my gap. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) I'm remembering when... um, uh, Greta Turnberry, I always mess up her name, so my apologies, Greta. Uh, there was this controversy that came about. She's a young, white, uh, European climate activist. I forget her country of origin. But she would also often be in conversation with environmental activists of color, like Vanessa Nakate, who is, I believe she's from Uganda, uh, but these were young people who were black and brown from all across the globe. But all you would see on the camera was Greta. And there were some people who were like... Uh, pull the camera back because by the time the the image of who the climate activists of power were, you would only see the young white climate activists, but then we would see the rest of the picture. You know how they they hone in on the picture. They crop the picture. Mm -hmm. We'd see the rest of the picture and there's Vanessa standing right next to her with her beautiful, richly melanated skin, but cropped Mm -hmm. out of the picture. And the headlines are looking at climate activists of color. So as a lighter skinned black woman, uh, I know what it is to be the beneficiary of these mm-hmm. systems. And so it makes sense to me that we are seeing the replication. But I think that's one of the reasons it's going to be important for us to really comb through all of that noise and make sure that we're getting to the people on the ground who are doing the actual work. Because we don't want to replicate those inequities as we're trying to usher in a new era of racial exactly. and climate justice. So let's think about the alternatives we have, right? In terms of how the activism shows up and and in terms of what our young people are fighting against. We've got Joe Biden, and the Biden-Harris administration, the president, uh, the Democrats who have, you know, signed the executive order that, you know, by our both of our understanding is going to do a lot of good. At the same time, they've got the Willow Project, which you mentioned. So there's a little bit of schizophrenia over there. On the other side of the aisle, <laughs> got the Republicans. I want you all to take a listen to this clip from Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is an actual congressperson making actual arguments in on the floor of the, the the house of representatives let's cue this up and i want you to listen to how much cognitive dissonance and just complete asinine thought is in a part of what she's about to say it's a brief clip let's take a listen people are not affecting climate change you're going to tell me that back in the ice age how much taxes did people pay and how many changes did governments make to melt the ice. The climate is going to continue to change. And there is no reason to just open up our borders and allow everyone in and continue to funnel over $50 billion or however many billions of dollars or trillions of dollars to foreign countries all over the world simply because they don't like the climate change. Mr. Listen. There's no reason, uh, Maya, that we should be funneling billions or trillions or dillions or gazillions or billions of dollars and opening border. She's got everything in there. We've got open borders. So we're going to blame the immigrants. We've got we've got billions and trillions of foreign aid dollars. And listen, Maya, how much money were they paying in the Ice Age when the government was melting the ice? This is the type of, of thought. <laughs> 
sorry. I was trying to keep a straight face, but now we're both giggling. This is the type of thought that we are seeing come out of the Republican Party. And whether it's reproductive justice, where they're completely missing the point and the moment, whether it's book bans, where they are missing the point and the moment, whether it's voting suppression, where they're missing the point and the moment, they seem to be really out of step with most rational thinking people, but they really seem to be out of step when it comes to the concerns of Gen Z, who are going to be the next round of voters. What are your thoughts on the, the brilliance that is masquerading as Marjorie Taylor Greene? And how do you think these types of talking points and this Republican approach to climate justice, to the extent that we can call it that, how is that landing with this new population of very active, very motivated and politically engaged young people? That is a great question. And I'm so glad you shared that clip because that clip is an example of what we're up against. And I'm somebody who I'm very, you know, left-leaning, but I will listen to Fox to see what I'm up against. I will read a conservative paper to see what I am dealing with when I write something about race. Mm. So first where I want to start is hurt bringing up immigrants. Okay. The irony is in 2022, the International Panel on Climate Change listed colonization as a contributor to climate change. Now, Miss Marjorie Green, your last name is very British sounding, okay, is very like United Kingdom sounding. I don't know if she forgot, maybe she had a little problem with her memory, but um, yeah, European people came here and colonized deforestation, industrialization, building oil refineries in black communities specifically because the land they want to purchase is cheaper or they don't care about black people. So for a blonde Mm -hmm. white woman who clearly is of European descent to say that immigrants can't come over here when her people are the ones that cause climate change by coming over to a place that they were not originally from is ironic and tone deaf because Mm -hmm. she doesn't realize that her people are the reason there is climate change. Now we say all these other factors and blah, and that's true. But if white people hadn't gone and colonized the world, I think we'd be, we'd be doing all right. You know, I had not heard it put that way before, but I think you are absolutely right. And uh, what's interesting about this is we now have these reports about the the climate change disaster that is taking place in the Horn of Africa. And we're knowing that or the reports are indicating and and making it very, very clear that it's all man-made. It's human generated climate change activity that is causing drought and that is causing that is increasing food insecurity and housing insecurity for the entirety of the Horn of Africa. And the idea that colonization is tied to this, I mean, it makes absolute logical sense. You had colonization and you had the disruption of the the planetary how do we call this? The, the, I don't want to call them garden keepers because that's not the right word, but we had indigenous people who understood what it meant to live in harmony with the environment, mm-hmm. who understood what it meant to care for the forests, who understood what it meant to minimize our negative imprint on it. And when the colonizers came here and when the indigenous were thrust off their land at gunpoint and when enslaved Africans were brought over here to overfarm the land, and by overfarm, I mean planting season after season after season of the same crop driven by profits, not driven, not driven with a con- uh, a level of concern for the care of the land that you were depleting nutrients from all of that. And then that's before you get to the industrial revolution, which produces the smog and, and smokestacks that we still drive past today. Mm-hmm. I had not really thought about colonization being one of the primary contributors to climate change, but it seems really hard to disagree with that in any meaningful way. Well, here's the thing. We're taught not to think about it. Do you see mm-hmm. it in our history books when you take 
AP, you know, when we could in some states take AP US African American history, do we see them saying, oh yes, when the colonizers came over, it actually led to deforestation and, um, you know, black people picking natural resources that, you know, originally were Native Americans resources, all these different things. We are conditioned not to think about colonization. But if you think about a lot of problems in the world, like example, gun violence, guns didn't come around until European people spread them. No one's talking about how colonization relates to gun violence. No one's talking about how colonization relates to the green problems that we have in this world. Because colonization is the root of a lot of problems in America. And it is the root of climate change and no one is talking about it. Well, we're talking about it right now. And one of the things we know is that according to those reports that I mentioned earlier, uh, planet heating pollution caused by burning fossil fuels has made the regions, this is a direct quote, has made the region's ongoing agricultural drought 100 times more likely. Maya, 100 times more likely. And that they say is a very conservative estimate, which means that the drought people are experiencing right now, the, the negative impacts that people are experiencing right now is made 100 times worse because of humans. And as you pointed out, a lot of those humans happen to be white because of the way in which their policies have organized our world mm -hmm. according to racial hierarchies and have locked up power in the hands of a few. We don't have massive amounts of pollution happening in indigenous communities. You don't have a whole lot of smokestacks just going up in indigenous spaces. You don't have a lot of deforestation practices in spaces where indigenous communities are left alone. What you see happening is that the colonizers come in and then there goes the ability to care for the planet. Damn mm -hmm. it. Now I'm going to have to think about this completely differently in so many ways. But this is what I think more and more Gen Z folks are asking us to do, which is to consider how historic issues of, of racial oppression and, and colonization are really at the heart of what we're talking about when we're seeing Flint not have clean water, when we're seeing the privatization of water. I've been seeing reports about how some of the Native Americans who are stuck on reservations to this day have to drive 30 miles to pick up water on a regular, almost daily basis and bring it back home because of the water that they do not have in their new, and I say new in terms of being now on these reservations, in their new homes. And so this is an issue that is going to be escalating. What are we doing? How are we responding? I know we have just a moment or two left, but what forms mm -hmm. of, in addition to the, the forms of activism that Gen Z is engaged in, are you seeing other generations following their lead? Should we, the, the Zennials and the Gen Xers who are not MAGA, because a lot of MAGA is Gen X, but should we like, should we be following these folks or what should we be doing? I know the children are the future, but I feel bad requiring them to like step up and fix what a lot of us olds have messed up. Mm -hmm. What's the next step in terms of effective activism and organizing for the Black community broadly beyond the Gen Z uh, age demographic? I think that Gen Z has inspired millennials to take more action, whether it's with the LGBTQ community, whether it's with racial justice, because intersectionality is the combination of multiple modes of oppression. And most mm -hmm. of us are intersectional, most Black folk. And so Gen Z has realized that and they've changed their audience to be more inclusive. And the only way we're gonna get environmental justice is if everybody's on board. And that means mm -hmm. including people of color, disabled people and more. Wow. 
this is important and it's a topic that we've been talking a lot about over the past few weeks because it's important and because I really need us to have a different approach to how we think about it. I want to not be the granola black girl. Like I want us to all be a little granola to care for the trees, to recognize how much we rely on them and to recognize that we all have a role. And as much as I am impressed by the way that Gen Z is showing up, I'm, I'm also a little ashamed because we got to do better. And I think they're giving us some real concrete examples as to what that looks like and how we can show up for them. Maya, how can people follow you? I love Word in Black. I love what you all are doing over there. It's y'all. It's capital B News. Yeah, there's a couple of Black publications right now that I'm like, yes, I am rooting for you for your success because your success is our success. How can people follow you? How can they follow Word in Black and, and stay connected to this information, which is presented for us by us in a way that centers us? Well, Word in Black is all over social media. We're on LinkedIn, we're on Instagram, and it's just Word in Black News. And the great thing about following Word in Black is that we cover all things Black culture. So if you're tired of reading about what white men are doing in politics or this or that, we'll talk about that, but it's from a Black lens. And so you can follow me on Twitter at mrichard underscore craven. M Richard underscore C-R-A-V-E-N. And the last thing I want to say is that we have an obligation to fight for climate justice. I'm a believer mm. that I have an obligation to look out for all Black people. There are millions of Black people behind me every day rooting for me. And wow. so I have an obligation to my ancestors, my grandmother who picked cotton and didn't go to high school, to care for this planet. Hmm. We have an obligation, a responsibility, and a, an ancestral duty. I love when people say, we're our ancestors' wildest dreams. Well, yeah, that means we get to work, right? That mm -hmm. means we get to do the work that is necessary. Maya, it's been a real pleasure having you here. I look forward to bringing you back for some more climate justice uh, information, and we will be following you closely. Thank you for doing this work. It's really necessary, and it's important that the call come from within the house, and this time it is. Our people have to call us to account because we have a role to play here as well. Thank you for being with us today. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. You have a good one.